Again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast with Dave hosting today, and I'm pleased to be joined by Scott Cardinal, the owner of the Campfire Entertainment Network, which produces multimedia presentations, educational courses, and audible adventures that showcase historic and legendary homes and workspaces, including a couple homes of the Beatles. So I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Scott. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Terrific. And we, we just started the podcast today with uh, listening to Ding Dong Ding Dong, George Harrison's 1974 song on Dark Horse. And I understand that uh, at least the, a couple of the lyrics were inspired by carvings in uh, Friar Park, which is one of George's homes. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But do you want to say a little bit about what, what strikes you about Ding Dong Ding Dong and why you found that song interesting? Well, design psychology has always interested me, and the way creative people live, and the way they work, and how they're surrounded by their surround, you know, how they're inspired by their surroundings. And George Harrison, when he purchased Friar Park, there are all these crazy aphorisms and proverbs, and uh, uh, just all sorts of images around him. And he was inspired to write certain songs based on what he saw. And Ding Dong Ding Dong was actually one of them. There was actually an engraving on this massive fireplace in the room when you first entered the house. And it was actually those words are from Ring Out Wild Bells, which is a poem by Lord Tennyson, which was published in 1850. I don't know if George knew it at the time, but either way, he was inspired by the lyrics, uh, inspired by the words, and turned them into lyrics for his song. Hmm. So, yeah. so had he not lived in Friar Park, maybe that song would never have been written. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we're going to find that to be the case with a couple other songs, certainly, too. So uh, I've Look forward to hearing about that in a minute. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. So how did you get into uh, historic homes and being interested in especially starting out in New York? Because you're based in New York, uh, and everybody knows if you've been to New York uh, and you're a Beatle fan, you walk by the Dakota. And uh, I'm just curious what your background is and, and kind of how you got to do what you're doing. Okay. Well, I was born in New York City, and everyone in my family was actually born in New York City. And people from New York know what that means. New York City means Manhattan. doesn't mean Brooklyn or Queens or Long Island or even upstate. Not Staten so, Island? Uh, Staten Island, Long Island, yeah. Did I leave Staten Island out? Yeah. Uh, Just, it's the, step, the stepchild, sorry. Yeah. They, 
Go ahead. Yeah. But uh, but we love Staten Island nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But it's still part of the family. If there's a war, we'll defend Staten Island. Yeah. Very better thing. But anyway, my entire life, I was surrounded by these beautiful historic buildings. And when you grow up like that, you kind of either become desensitized to it, you know, like maybe living in Rome, you know, after a while you pass 400 fountains, it doesn't really mean much to you after a while. Or the opposite, maybe you become completely fascinated by it all. And so I was that type. I actually was fascinated by all of that around me. And, I mean, you can take an example like the Statue of Liberty. I mean, that's normal for somebody like me to see that every single day. But on the other hand, it's kind of unusual to have this gigantic statue out there on its own little island. And so it's, it's just, it's a beautiful way to grow up. It was a beautiful experience to be able to walk through Manhattan, to be able to walk through the streets and have buildings there from the 1800s and the early 1900s. And for people listening to this in other countries, they think, you know, sound like lunatics right now. <laughs> You know, wow, something from the 1800s. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, in New York, it's a big deal, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's even a creepy old church with its own graveyard right there, and it was in the shadow of the Twin Towers as I was growing up, and that was really wild. And so I just, um, living in New York City was just fantastic, and the Dakota, as we know, was built in the 1800s, and when I was a kid, my parents used to, to go to... Uh, take the family to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And where we used to watch it was the corner of West 72nd Street and Central Park West. Oh, you're right there. Yeah, that's a really good place to watch it because with the huge crowds, as soon as you turn around, the park is so enormous that you just kind of get absorbed into it. Mm. And so you're not dealing with, you know, crossing the street and going into stores and restaurants. You just turn and go into the park. But... What was interesting is that when you watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, a normal person watches the balloons go by, Mm -hmm. right? They want to see Snoopy and Smurfette (laughs) and the rest of it. And I was always staring at the really old building on the other side of the street. And I just loved it. I thought it was a beautiful building. I was fascinated by it. And I just wanted to learn as much as I could, you know, about the building. But one thing that always bothered me is that any time somebody walks past it, like you, you and I, for example, yeah. we can get on an airplane right now, we could fly to New York City, we could take a cab right in front of the Dakota, get out. I guarantee you right now there are people outside taking photographs of the Port Cochere, which is the entryway, because that's where John Lennon got shot. Mm-hmm. In you fact, know? I just saw, as we were talking before the show, I just saw that a couple weeks ago when I was in New York. And it just people taking selfies and just, uh, I don't know, it really bothers me when there's so much more in that building. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah. I mean, here's easily one of the most famous men in the world. And what happened there was horrible beyond belief. But to go over there and just take a photograph, uh, sometimes smiling in your photograph, and then go buy a slice of pizza. (laughs) 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 <laughs> not good. Not yeah, not yeah. exactly the best thing. And there's lots of tour groups that go by and just a, actually about 10 days ago I was in front of the Dakota taking photos and a tour group went by and the gentleman who was giving the tour group was talking about the Dakota. And I would say out of everything he said, 98% of it was wrong. Mm. Everything. 
you know, I, wa- I wanted to just step in there and ask everybody to just, whatever they paid him, ask for a refund and hand it to me real quick. <laughs> so I could give him the real answers and, and then we could go get a slice of pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads me to the, the next question. And so how, so you've got this interest in historic buildings and, and things like that. So how do you actually do the research for it? Because I, I imagine you can't just go in and knock on Yoko's door and say, hey, can I take a look around your place? Uh, and and find all this stuff. So how do you? What's the process like to prepare and do the research for your tours and books and such? Well, growing up in New York City made it easy because I had friends and family who had friends who knew people all over the Upper West Side. I know the Upper West Side very well, and I had a very good friend who knew people that lived in the Dakota. He was a very famous. Well, if you lived in New York City, he was a very <laughs> famous show host named Joe Franklin. And Joe is an interesting guy because he was from New York and he actually had a show, a talk show on the air longer, I think, than any other talk show in history. Hmm. But the problem is nobody ever heard of him unless you're from New York because the signal only traveled about about 90 miles or so. But because he was in New York, everybody wanted to be on his show. You know, you had everybody in Manhattan watching it. And he was just an interesting guy, and about, oh, I don't know, about six or seven years ago, I was helping him develop some projects, and he asked me about what I was working on outside of the things I was working on you know, with him about, and I mentioned the Dakota, and he leaned back, and he goes, hmm, I wonder who I know that lives there. <laughs> and so oh. I started mentioning, you know, Lauren Bacall, uh, Rex Reed, Rever- Roberta Flack, and, you know, different people, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, I know them, Sure. And then he um, he opened up the doors. Oh for my me. god! Wow. Yeah, contacted some of these people. They knew him. They respected him. In fact, John Lennon was on Joe Franklin a bunch of times, and so was Yoko Ono. And the first time I met Yoko was uh, backstage. She had a an off Broadway show called New York Rock, and I went to talk to her afterward. And I mentioned Joe Franklin, and we just had a nice conversation. She was very cordial and very warm. So he was able to open up some doors. So before I met with anybody, though, I went to the archives of the New York Public Library, which has a lot of fantastic photos. Also, the New York Times and a lot of newspapers that were around in the 1800s. And so I would read articles about the Dakota as it was being built. And it was kind of a freak show because nobody had ever (laughs) seen a building like that before. They didn't really know what to make of it. So it was fun to read those articles. And then finally, a couple of the Dakota residents invited me to come in. And I, it was the greatest day. It was like a, mm. something I daydreamed about. I was midtown, and I went into a cab. And the cabbie turned to me, and he said, where are you going? And, of course, I said something that I've wanted to say since I was a kid. <laughs> I said, to the Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, he barely spoke English, and he looked at me, and he said, where? <laughs> <laughs> like North Dakota or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said, West 72nd Street near the park. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. so in a way, you did actually almost go and knock on Yoko's door and get into the building, at least call her from downstairs. Uh, yeah, it wasn't Yoko who I met at first. It was a couple of other people, and for privacy purposes, I'd rather not say who they are, sure. but... But very famous, uh, very wealthy, and just great. Uh, to go hmm. out of their way to invite me into the Dakota, 
it's more difficult, I think, to get into the Pentagon than oh. it is to get in. Yeah, no one's getting into the Dakota. Not just not just because of what happened with John Lennon, but because the number of people that live there incredibly famous, incredibly wealthy, mm-hmm. and there's really only one entry that's yeah. opened it. Yeah. Wow, very I mean, protected. Yeah, and so they don't want people walking in and out like they did, I think, in the 60s and 70s, but that was a different time. Sure. Well, you know, so those days are over. Yeah. Uh, I imagine, I mean, that's such a historic building and it stands out uh, when you walk by or, or see it, but have other people written about it before you and do you rely on other sources? I know you've talked about how you hear tour guides that are telling all sorts of wrong information, but have there been some good sources and uh, do you use other uh, means to put together your work? Yeah, great question. Stephen Birmingham, uh, he's uh, deceased unfortunately, but very, very nice guy. And he wrote a beautiful book about the Dakota in 1979. It didn't have many images in it, but he interviewed a lot of people that live there. And his background was interviewing very wealthy people and writing about the social history of wealthy people. So for the most part, if you're interested in that sort of thing, he wrote about it, which Mm -hmm. was great. And of course, he had to include some history of the building and the gentleman who built it and the architect. He really didn't delve into the architecture and some of the things that, that I was really interested in. And there have been a handful of articles here and there, but a lot of them are filled with a lot of urban legends, uh, a lot of myths, yeah, mm-hmm. same old dopey thing. If I hear <laughs> one time, you know, about all these monsters that live there. and A lot of ghosts, right? <laughs> yeah, you hear all that. You hear sort of people jumping out of windows. and Oh, no. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, Rosemary's Baby wasn't even filmed in the Dakota. I thought it that was. Is, no, there was oh. exterior shots. Oh. And so they were able to shoot there. And they did manage to get into the courtyard. Mm-hmm. So Roman Polanski was able to get one shot of them walking through. And then that was pretty much it. But after that, the apartments themselves and the hallways, those were shot in a sound studio, I think in Queens. Wow. Okay. That's but, that's another urban legend that it was right there in the in the building. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. Actually, I spoke to a lot of residents who were offended by that because their building, their apartments are much more beautiful than, than a Roman <laughs> movie. Wow. Yeah. Well, so obviously John and Yoko are probably the most famous people related to our podcast who live there. But of course, others like Leonard Bernstein and other people you mentioned live there. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the history of the building itself that uh, way before John and Yoko and Bernstein and all, Lauren Bacall, everyone else was there. What was what was happening when it was built, and what was Upper West Side like? Yeah, well, the Upper West Side was was relatively tame uh, in a different way. There weren't all these buildings everywhere. There were some country homes. There were orphanages. There were a couple of insane asylums. Uh, a lot of goats. Oh. Uh, goat, yeah, goats <laughs> seemed to enjoy living. <laughs> Yeah, you had a little, you know, you had some squatters, you had that sort of stuff. It really wasn't developed. You know, Manhattan, back in, when they started building it, it was downtown, obviously. Mm-hmm. It was all the way down by Staten Island. No <laughs> way, there you go. <laughs> Towards the bottom. In fact, the name Wall Street uh, originally uh, acquired that name because there used to be a wall there. Hmm. And that was to protect the residents of, this, of uh, Manhattan from any Native Americans or, or giant uh, monsters that were going to wow. come in from the woods and attack them. 
And then after that, it would just slowly work its way uptown to 14th Street, then 24th Street, then 34th, then 42nd, then all the way up to about 57th, 58th, and 59th Street. And so Central Park was way, 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 way up there. Yeah. And Dakota, obviously West 72nd Street, there wasn't anything really going on. But the gentleman who, um, who built the property, his name was Edward Clark. So to give you a little bit of background about him, there was a gentleman named Isaac Singer, and he was the inventor of the Singer sewing machine. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't the inventor of the sewing machine. He was the inventor of the Singer sewing ah, machine. okay. Yeah, because the sewing machine itself at the time required about 25 different moving parts. And so you had 25 different inventors owning different pieces of it. Hmm. And Isaac Singer came up with a way to actually make it functional, really make it work without driving people crazy. But unfortunately, he required the uses of other people's patents. And so there were constant lawsuits going on left and right, up and down. And there was um, the, uh, the sewing machine, the Singer sewing machine was actually the first patent pool. Wow. So they all, sort of, yeah, they all threw their patents together and they said, look, instead of suing each other, why don't we just... Uh, you know, work together, and, and Isaac Singer will manufacture them, and everybody will get a piece of the action. And because his legal fees were just going through the roof, Isaac Singer hooked up with his lawyer, Edward Clark. Now, this was good for a lot of different reasons, because Isaac Singer wasn't a very pleasant human being. <laughs> he's, very, he's very loud. He's very visceral. He wanted to be an actor. That's a New Yorker, though, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, he was in America, yeah. So he was, he was just a, a big, giant guy. He also had, over the course of his lifetime, five different wives and six different mistresses. Wow, ladies' man. Uh, some, yeah, sometimes at the same time. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> yeah, some got lucky and became a wife. Some of them, who knows. Mm. It was going all over the place. So he decided after a while that he was just going to retire. It wasn't looking good in Victorian times to have that sort of thing going on. He also had about 24 children. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a mess. <laughs> yeah. So Edward Clark kind of stepped in, and he was the gentleman who dealt with everybody, and they came up with the, you know, the different ways to manufacture it and to market it. And they just came up. They actually, the first layaway plan was developed for the sewing machine. Hmm. Yeah, because at the time, it was about $125. That was a lot of bread. Pretty expensive, yeah. Yeah, and so it was the first way for people to be able to afford a large appliance like that. But both of them earned more money than they could possibly ever spend in their lifetime. So, like I said, Isaac Singer took his family and they retired to England. And Edward Clark, he retired to upstate New York. And then he spent a lot of time traveling through Europe. And he went to, um, he saw quite a number of French flats. And he thought, you know, this probably would be a good way for New Yorkers to live. Because the reason I mentioned Manhattan earlier being an island is the fact that there wasn't much room for growth. Whereas London, Barcelona, oh, Rome, yeah. you know, you could expand you could expand outward. And so that's why when you go to certain European countries, you could have buildings that are from the fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, you know, like in Prague, and they're still around mm-hmm. in their three or four stories high. Because there really wasn't a reason to knock them down. But in New York they were constantly knocking buildings down to build higher and higher and higher ones. 
And New York at the time, in the 1800s, you were either very poor or you were very wealthy. But also, because of the Industrial Revolution, there was so much going on in New York where people who were either very poor or just slightly above being poor were just acquiring huge fortunes as a result of their hard work, you know, and their inventions and manufacturing and opening up retail outlets. And so there needed to be something in the middle, something not for the very poor, something not for the very wealthy, but something kind of middle class, the way they live in Europe. And so Edward Clark said, hey, let's do something like that in New York. So he went back to Manhattan and he hooked up with a great young architect named Henry Janeway Hardenberg, and they started messing around with ideas. And they combined the benefits of living in a hotel with how they were living in French flats. And they started off in midtown Manhattan, and they tried a few different buildings. They had courtyards and the rest of it. But eventually, they started working on their masterpiece, which was the Dakota. And that went on to become the first luxury apartment building in America. It was wow. pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. So... It was 1880 to 1884, so that we're getting yeah. right towards the Industrial Revolution and uh, things were really happening. So did that it really stood out then, certainly, at that time when it was finished. Yeah, well, in a lot of different ways. For starters, electricity was new. Hmm. And yeah. Thomas Edison was all the way downtown. But meanwhile, the Dakota is all the way uptown. And so Edward Clark, because he was just rolling in dough, he actually had his own Con Ed, well, uh, Consolidated Edison, his own electric plant. Built, uh, <laughs> for people who aren't from New York, um, he actually bought the property that the Dakota was built on, but he also bought a lot next door. And underneath it, he had a subterranean passageway and rooms, and he built his own miniature um, uh, electric plant. Wow. And that was to be able to not only provide electricity to the Dakota, but also to help develop the neighborhood around it. And that way he could be assured that his real estate would continue to have some value because it would encourage other developers to build higher quality buildings in the area. Huh. So in a way, he kind of pioneered what would happen around that area, kind of got things started. Yeah. You want to hear something cool? Yeah. In addition to having the electricity, which, like we said, was relatively new at the time and kind of untrusted, they still wanted to have other ways to be able to bring light into the building. So if you go into the courtyard of the Dakota, there are these two massive fountains. Now, you walk past it, and you're like, okay, cool, two massive fountains. But if you went over to it, underneath the thin layer of water were these uh, little glass uh, windows. And the reason why is because sunlight would start off, obviously, in the sun, <laughs> come through the sky, work its way to Manhattan, go through the courtyard of the Dakota, penetrate through that layer of water, and then shine light into the basement of the Dakota. Wow. That <laughs> <laughs> is pretty innovative, yeah. actually. Huh. Yeah. And, and also, if you were just at the Dakota, like you said, you noticed that there was a dry moat. Yes. Around the entire building. Yes. That's kind of weird. It is kind of weird, isn't it? Well, one of them now you, it goes to the subway, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So the reason for the dry moat, most people think that's there for security. And it kind of is, but also it was because it created a, it was because it's a dry moat, it also acts as a light well to also allow light to penetrate 
into the rooms in the basement as well. Hmm. And so you had light coming in from the courtyard and also from the exterior of the building, just simply by doing that dry moat around it, which, as you saw also, there's that beautiful, ornate railing. Yes, around the yeah. So how did John and Yoko end up living there, and what were their experiences like living in the Dakota? Well, originally they were living in England, as you know, at Tittenhurst Park, mm -hmm. and they jumped ship from there. They moved to New York City. They were living in the St. Regis Hotel, and then they became friendly. Actually, I think they were already friendly with the drummer, Joe Butler, from the Love and Spoonful. And he had an apartment in the village, as New Yorkers call it, but Greenwich Village to everybody else. And he had a great apartment there, uh, which brought in a lot of light. And he said to Johnny Yoko, would you like to take over the lease? And they said, yeah, fantastic. And so their whole life changed. I mean, can you imagine you're John Lennon? Ugh. Four or five years ago, you couldn't walk three feet without being mobbed. Yep. And then you move to a place like New York where... Nobody really cares, you know, because we're so, we're so used to so many celebrities that it really didn't. I mean, of course, it's John Lennon, and I'm sure people were, you know, shaking his hand and the rest of it. But for the most part, there's more breathing room for celebrities in New York. I think in some of the interviews, he even mentioned that, that he, that was one of the things that attracted him, that he could actually walk around the neighborhood and sort of have places he could go have coffee and not have people mobbing him all the time. So... I think that, that really did attract them, as you say. Exactly right. And all the restaurants. There yeah. was a particular restaurant in Chinatown, and he went there frequently. And so he lived in the village, which was really, especially at the time, a really hip and cool place to live. A lot of artists, a lot of musicians. But because it was still the 70s, early 70s, in New York, he also had a lot of crime. Mm. I mean, it wasn't exactly the Warriors, you know, with people in makeup <laughs> riding around on skates. Wait a minute, actually it was. It kind of was. No, but, it was. <laughs> but it wasn't that. But um, so anyway, so the, the apartment that they were staying at got broken into a few times. And sooner or later, this is John and Yoko for crying out loud. They need to find their own yeah. place. They have a ton of possessions and, and they deserve to have their own place and, and they could afford it. And so they started looking around. And they found out that actor Robert Ryan, who most people probably don't know him by name, but if you saw him in movies, you'd say, oh, that guy. Uh, he had a fantastic apartment on the seventh floor of the Dakota on the southeast corner. And they went ahead and took over his apartment. But sadly, he was dying from cancer mm. at the time. And so sooner or later, we know how that worked out. And John and Yoko were able to purchase the apartment from... Uh, Robert Ryan's estate, and as far as their life there, well, so this was about this was seventy three, was it or 73. Yeah, yeah. seventy three. Okay. <laughs> then John moved to yeah, California. I was going to say that's the lost weekend period right after that. Yeah, and as far as what Yoko did at the time, I'm not really too familiar with her personal life or what she was doing at the time. But soon, all be soon, we know that she and John hooked back together again, and he was able to move back into his apartment. And life became completely different for John Lennon. He had a son. Well, he, had, he already had Julian, obviously. Yep. Yep. But here was his opportunity to be a father and to get away from the craziness of uh, being a Beatle and traveling around. He spent a lot of time at home, which hmm. we already knew he did a lot anyway. Yeah. Well, I know there's a lot of recordings of him, uh, the, the Dakota tapes and some of these bootleg recordings that he would record demos and 
songs on a piano in the apartment. I'm curious where that would be or how, what was the layout of the apartment? Sort of like how many bedrooms, bathrooms, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the apartments in the Dakota have changed over time. The apartment that he bought um, had it. It had the original layout, which is fantastic. But the reason that they changed over time is some apartments were 4,500 square feet. That's huge. That's oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. and, and on the ground floor, the apartments, uh, uh, ceilings are 15 feet high. Wow. Huge. Yeah. And then because these were the days before steel frame construction, the uh, walls of the Dakota around the entire perimeter of the building, as well as the, the uh, walls dividing the apartments, are about three feet thick. So you almost didn't want to change the apartments too much because it was a nightmare just getting through these walls. And so uh, John Lennon's apartment, the ceilings were 12 feet high, which is pretty good. And he had a lot of light coming in. So you would walk into a vestibule. And then because there was no electricity back then, there were fireplaces all over the place. So, yeah. So, for example, the largest apartment in the Dakota in the 1800s when it was being built had 17 fireplaces in it. (laughs) That's a lot of wood or coal or whatever they used. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, no. It's it's good that you mentioned that. I'll tell you why. One of the uh, amenities of living there is that the staff of the Dakota would come to your apartment and they would clean out your fireplaces for you and then they would replace it with fresh wood and then they would go into your kitchen to the coal-burning stoves and they would clean out those ashes also and they would put fresh coal in there. How nice. That's pretty, yeah. yeah. There, was, <laughs> there, was a lot, there was a lot of great amenities. It was all the way up until World War II that the Dakota had all this going on. In fact, it even had its own restaurant at one time. And when you go to the Dakota, for anybody listening to this, when you go to the Dakota, on that corner that faces Central Park, uh, just before you get to the entryway, on the ground floor, that entire space was originally a restaurant for the exclusive use of Dakota residents. So if, let's just say, you and I are walking through the Dakota, I'm walking through New York, it's 1899. And you say to me, hey, let's pop into that restaurant and grab a sandwich. Guess what? We're not getting Not in. getting in. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would happen instead is, let's say our friend lived in there. He would get a menu printed every morning. Uh, it would go by his door. He would get it and, say, and it would show what was being served that day. And then he would call downstairs and he would say, okay, I'm coming down, table for seven at, you know, six o'clock. And then we would be able to actually go into the Dakota because we would be guests. And then uh, we would be in and there we would be served by white gloved waiters. Now, a lot of this wasn't going on, obviously, when John and Yoko moved in. But as far as the layout, you walked in, there was a huge corridor. And then on the left side, if you kept walking and walking and walking, because the Dakota actually takes up an entire city block Mm -hmm. from West 72nd Street to West 73rd. And you have two apartments on the seventh floor. So John and Yoko, basically their apartment took up half that block. Yeah, right. And then you have the other apartment taking up the other half. And so you're walking quite a bit. And then you have this massive kitchen, which actually had its own entryway also, because the Dakota not only had four elevators, one in each uh, corner for residents, there were also another four for the staff. 
And so when the, they would come in, for example, to clean the stoves, they wouldn't go up the, you know, the elevators with the, you know, the, with the, uh, the people that live there. Yeah. They would go through the staff ones. And so you had the huge kitchen on one side, and then facing Central Park and facing the street, just like all the other, most of the other apartments in the Dakota, usually it was the dining room and the kitchen that faced the courtyard. And then you had the apartments and the living spaces facing Central Park and facing the streets. And that was because mainly it was more beautiful that way. Mm-hmm. You also had more privacy because you didn't have people in the, from one side of the courtyard you know, sitting there watching you in your bedroom. And also you had the benefit of cross-ventilation. So you could open up the windows on the, in the courtyard and also on the exterior of the building because, once again, no electricity, no yeah. air conditioning. And so in those days you had circulation of air going through, which was quite nice because with the walls being three feet thick anyway, uh, you really didn't feel any heat or cold from outside the building. Hmm. It's like living in a cabin. Yeah, sounds like a great place to live, actually. Yeah, yeah. So before we move on to one of his other residences, uh, was John and were John and Yoko friendly with other residents, or did they kind of stick to themselves, or do, do people know much about that? Well, they were very good friends with Roberta Flack. She mm-hmm. lives actually. I think her apartment's her apartment's still for sale. I think it went up last year or so. But she lives on the seventh floor also, right to the north. So they were very friendly with Roberta Flack. They were friendly with Leonard Bernstein. Mm-hmm. They were friendly with Lauren Bacall. And there were just all sorts of great, you know, uh, Gilda Radner. Oh, she was, yeah. Yeah, she was on top of the world in the 1970s because of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's and, Yeah, so she lived in the building, and that was nice. And, yeah, what, what they did in the Dakota uh, is every year the residents would get together around the holidays and they would sing and do all sorts of fun stuff and be able to interact with each other because sometimes that would be the only chance to really see your neighbors with the exception of some dinner parties here and there. Hmm. So they were friendly and there are stories of them being able to go to dinner with different people. But I also think at the time, John was spending so much time alone, you know, with with Sean. Yeah, Sean, right. Yeah, or traveling Japan and the rest of it. But yeah, I just love the Dakota. Let me just mention very quickly some of the other people that live there because I think people will find it interesting. You had Lillian Gish, the silent film star. She lived there. Boris Karloff lived there. And Frankenstein. That been... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you had, you had Boris Karloff. You had Leonard Bernstein, obviously. You had Gilda Radner. Rex Reed, cool guy. Mm. Great, uh, great film critic. Very interesting, very charismatic. Uh, nice, nice guy. Always nice to me. Uh, Jose Ferrer. I probably just said his name wrong, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody could say Jose Ferrer, no. right? <laughs> and her, his lovely wife, uh, Rosemary oh, Clooney, who mm-hmm. was the aunt of George Clooney. That's right. Uh, Judy Holliday, uh, Polly Bergen, Rudolf Nureyev. Oh, the dancer. And the only reason I just mentioned his name is because you that I was able to say Rudolf Nureyev correctly <laughs> and uh, and just it was just amazing just a beautiful building and yet a lot of creative people that have always lived there even from the early in the 1800s one of the first families to live there was the Steinway piano family ah, yeah. yeah so that was great well before John moved to the Dakota and before he moved to New York he was at Tittenhurst Park which I think is the subject of one of your new uh, publications and new tours 
Uh, and that's interesting for a lot of reasons because we see it in the Imagine video and in the, the documentary about the making of the album. Uh, and of course, there are two Beatles that live there. So let's let's uh, go back to England and hear about Tittenhurst Park and some of its history. Unlike Manhattan, this place dates all the way back to the 1200s. At the time, the King of England, uh, some nuns said, hey, can we have that land over there? And the king said, grab me a pen. I will give this land to some nuns and they can chop down wood and grow tomatoes for me, or whatever it is they did. <laughs> now, if you jump all the way to the 1800s, there was a gentleman who purchased the property. His name was Thomas Holloway. Now, that name means a lot to people living in England. He was an incredibly wealthy man, and he made his fortune selling batches of ointments. You know, those things that people sell uh, on the back of a wagon. Remember um, the Say, Say, Say Yeah, video? exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think they were inspired by Tittenhurst Park when they uh -huh. did that. <laughs> They may as well, when Michael Jackson drank that liquid and mm -hmm. started spitting in circles, that may as well have been some crazy ointment or some uh, elixir by Thomas Holloway, and he just made a fortune. But what was great about what he did with his wealth is he didn't have any children, and he decided to take his, 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 his incredible amount of money, and he financed a woman's college called the Royal Holloway College. And he created something called a Museum of Trees. And what that means is that Tinhurst Park, in addition to being a beautiful mansion, was actually on over 70 acres of beautiful property. And he was obsessed with all sorts of different trees, and he brought them in from all over the world. He had trees from Northern California, he had some from Greece, China, Japan, Spain, uh, Brooklyn, you know, everywhere. You hmm. name it, there was a tree. And they survived. They were able to thrive in the types of conditions that were available there. And a lot of those trees are still still there and quite well known. It's a, it's a horticultural wonderland. Where is it exactly located in relation to London? About how far away? About a half hour. Oh, it's pretty close. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty close. Not too far, actually, from, uh, from the Queen. So if she wanted to swing by and grab some ointment. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, in, um, it's near Ascot. Ascot, okay. It, yeah. yeah so, well, those, the Museum of Trees makes a lot of sense as a good description because that's something that always strikes me in the videos. Just the grounds are just beautiful, and there's the... I don't know if it's during the, I think it's during the Oh My Love video when John is out on a boat or on a canoe or something on a lake there and just looks gorgeous. Originally, when John and Yoko were looking for a home, they wanted to find something with water property hmm. uh, because, you know, it's, it's, it's easy on, on the mind. Yeah. It brings peace and tranquility to one's life to be able to be near water. To look at it and to be able to enjoy something like that is wonderful, but Tinhurst Park was too good to be true. And so he bought it and he hired a company to actually be able to make a man-made lake. And that's mm. what that was. Oh, so that's what so that it is. Wasn't, okay. Yeah, it wasn't very deep. It's actually lined with rubber. Oh. <laughs> and, and, there's a little, uh, and there's a little island in the middle mm -hmm. where they built that uh, cottage, which in the video that you just mentioned, he does uh, go ahead and uh, paddle over there. And yeah. then he and Yoko 
go inside and they play chess. But uh, yeah, but that but it was think about this. They had enough property to make a man-made lake. Most people don't have that amount of property. No, it's pretty amazing. Well, also amazing is the music that was recorded there because there was a studio. So what was the uh, you know, they recorded Plastic Ono Band and Imagine. The studio. Yeah. When I first learned about that, the first person I thought of was Buddy Holly. Because Buddy Holly had a, an apartment in Greenwich Village in New York, and he didn't have a full studio, but he did have a machine in there where he was able to record uh, some songs towards the end of his life. Last two or three months he was recording in there. And... I don't know if anybody had ever done anything like that before. And so John said he, um, you know, he built this beautiful house, and he was an incredibly creative guy, as we all know. And he wanted his own studio for a few different reasons. One, to be able to go downstairs and to be able to work anytime, day or night. Right. That, that's priceless. And also, Yoko was getting a lot of flack at the time. Mm. And they wanted to record a lot of her songs. And so for them to go down to Abbey Road or Apple or to any place else and deal with that was just a little bit more, I think, than they wanted to deal with. So he hired a gentleman named Eddie Veal, who was an Apple engineer, and John Lennon single-handedly is responsible for the United Kingdom's first professional residential recording studio, and that was in the house at Tittenhurst Park. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and... Uh, and like you said, he recorded Imagine there, and he recorded uh, some Plastic Ono Band songs. Actually, you know something interesting? Upstairs, and I don't have a full understanding of how this works, but uh, because he spent so much time in bed, and he was always playing guitar, there were actually connections upstairs in his <laughs> bedroom, so John Lennon could plug his guitar in next to his bed, and somehow, some way, in some sort of chitty chitty bang bang, uh, <laughs> Willy Wonka, yeah. uh, wicked way, <laughs> it turned off scenery in another part of the house, and he was able wow. to record. Yeah, I can't testify under oath of how that all worked. I just know it happened. That's crazy. <laughs> well, because I remember reading something about the house or his life there, and it said that. He, they didn't really use much of the house. They kind of stayed in just a couple of rooms. I heard that there's just so many rooms and they hardly used any of it. Yeah, well the, be well, the bedroom was enormous. So when you think of a normal bedroom, that's not a John and Lennon, be you know, John Lennon bedroom. Right, right. You've got a bed in there and you've got your dresser and a TV and a picture of, you know, a cat on the wall yeah. or something. <laughs> but John had an enormous bed. He had his television, which he was always attached to. He had his, a lot of instruments in there, also guitars. He also had a beautiful bathroom built, and he wanted a round bathtub. And those weren't easy to come by yeah. back then. And so he managed to end up getting a jacuzzi-type round bathtub, which I think you could see about three or four seconds of it in probably one of the videos, I think, in the Imagine film, where okay. they show you Coco in the bath from the waist up. Of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> with some bubbles, I think. Yeah. So they had that. But you're right. It, it was a it was a large house with a lot of different rooms, and what they had is the master bedroom and the famous white room. Yes. Which actually, you know something that will give you an idea of the size of John Lennon's bedroom. That room, that huge white room with the piano, mm -hmm. that was John Lennon's bedroom. It was right above that room, and it was really? the same dimension. Well, that is huge. <laughs> Yeah, so you could put a piano, a grand piano, 
yeah. in, in your bedroom. You know, and then there was the kitchen, which was right next to the studio, which really added to the enjoyment of people being able to record there. Mm-hmm. Because it just, it just created a different type of scene. Whereas normally you would rent some time at a studio and you would go in there and then maybe you'd order out for lunch or you'd go downstairs and grab something. Whereas here they had a professional chef living with them and they were able to have meals anytime they wanted, not only for themselves, but for all of the musicians, all of the engineers, any visitors that came by. And so the kitchen was a really, really important part of their life at Tittenhurst. Life sort of revolved around that kitchen. Much more relaxed environment uh, for the recording and for just bonding with all the musicians and hanging out. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's why Ringo offered that same sort of opportunity to other musicians after he had purchased the property. So John was only there a few years. A couple of years, yeah. yeah. Um, in August 22nd, 1969, when the Beatles had taken that last photo session walking around Tittenhurst, right. uh, John and Ringo had just recently moved in, maybe about a week or so earlier. Even though they had purchased it a few months earlier, there were still some renovations that needed to be done, painting things white and laying down carpets and the rest of it. And then by the summer of 1971, they skedaddled. Yeah, and went to New York. Yeah, they went to yeah. New York, and it sat, it sort of sat empty for a while. Uh, he had some people working for him, but something interesting, this is cult trivia. The uh, Mark Bolin documentary, Born to Boogie, that was, that was directed by Ringo Starr. There's a famous sequence in that movie of Mark Bolin singing, dressed as a, they called it a mad tea party sequence. <laughs> And Mark Bolin is just wearing this crazy funky hat, like the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and Tony Visconti is there, and they've got a, a string quartet on the grass. Oh my god! And then, yeah, and Ringo, Ringo seems was always a cool dude. Yeah. And so then you had these nuns sitting at a table, and they're all sitting there. And one one nun has a beard, so I think it's a guy. <laughs> and they're all eating hamburgers and the rest of it. And so I don't know if he told John Lennon he was using the property for that, not that he would care. But at some point in 1972, Ringo and a bunch of bearded nuns and Mark Bolin showed up and they shot that very famous scene, which you can see on YouTube, which Whoa. is awesome. And well, then a year later, Ringo bought it. I was going to say, then he ended up staying there. So, yeah. And so they moved in. Uh, he and Maureen moved in. So maybe more of the house was used with kids there for a few years. And then they didn't stay too long either. Well, they got divorced in 1975, Maureen, Cox, and Ringo. Mm -hmm. And so Maureen went somewhere and uh, Ringo went somewhere else. I think just for tax purposes, uh, it wasn't a good idea for Ringo to stick around England too long anyway. And he rented out the house to uh, and the studio to musicians. So it was really amazing because I spoke to a lot of musicians, some really famous musicians, people who you would think would not be impressed by all that much. And one of the first things they told me is they were just in complete awe that they were crossing the threshold of where John Lennon, not only where John Lennon lived, but where John Lennon recorded the Imagine album. Mm -hmm. And so they were just fascinated by it. And to be able to stay in the house and to be able to go downstairs at their convenience at two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, you know, whenever the inspiration hit them, yeah. the band would go in there and they would record. And we're talking about groups like Def Leppard, uh, Judas Priest, um, White Snake. 
and you had also um, Ringo. Ringo formed his own company, Ringo Records, and so he had his bands that he signed that would also stay in the house and they would record. Hmm. So it was just a fantastic experience. And one thing I asked them is, how did that environment affect you? Yeah. And a lot of them were just inspired to be able to go downstairs and to be able to record and then to be able to take a break and to be able to walk through these beautiful, beautiful gardens with the flowers and the trees and just all. And, and it's, it's on a descending slopes. And you would just keep walking further and further and further and further from the house. And before you know it, you see the roof of the house. And then the house completely disappears and you're surrounded by these magnificent trees. It really was a wonderland. It really mm. was a magnificent experience for the people that had the, the priceless experience of going to Tittenhurst Park. Well, another priceless experience is Friar Park. And so let's uh, take a quick break here, music break, and listen to a song that's very much identified with Friar Park, where George lived from 1970 on until he died. Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, Let It Roll. Tell us about Friar Park, where uh, George Harrison spent a lot of his life. Friar Park is amazing. It's just amazing. It was built between 1895. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It was built by 1895, and between that time and 1919, the gentleman who lived there was its designer, and his name was Sir Frank Crisp. And this guy was awesome. <laughs> he was this brilliant lawyer in London. And he wanted a country home, like a lot of wealthy guys back then. And Henley on Thames was uh, getting hotter and hotter as a place for people to live. And he, he just decided, that's where I'm going to build my country home. And he ended up buying over 60 acres, not only surrounding his mansion would eventually be, but also some property across the way as well. So really, really incredible. Just mm -hmm. loved it. Mm -hmm. um, he just loved living there. The house itself was originally... A 120-room, neo-Gothic, Victorian mansion. And it was built upon the highest plateau on the property. Now, originally in the 1800s, a portion of the property was called Friar Field, and another part of it was called Friar's Park. So Sir Frank, who, by the way, he wasn't a sir at the time, he had this theme of friars built and designed throughout his home. So you've got all these crazy engravings. You've got these sculptures of friars. There are light switches <laughs> on the wall in the shape of friar faces. <laughs> How funny. Okay. Yeah. 
So, and you know how a light switch, you know, you flick it up, you flick it down, mm-hmm. right? Same thing in, in Fryer Park. That's no big deal, except those aren't switches. Those are the noses of the oh, fryers. <laughs> yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, doorknobs and just all sorts of strange things like that. But he was, you know, he was eccentric, or at least they say he was eccentric. I think he was just kind of a creative, fun, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interesting guy. The house was fantastic. We could actually talk, talk about the house forever. The gardens were the real attraction. So you know how I said that Tinhurst Park, they referred to it as a museum of trees? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Friar Park, that was referred to as a museum of gardens. And here's why. If you wanted to go right now to a Japanese garden, you could probably find one. You know, there are a dime a dozen these days. Yeah. But back in the 1800s and all the way up to 1919, especially in England, weren't many Japanese gardens around. And so he had a Japanese garden built on his property. He also had a topiary garden built with all sorts of strange, freakish shapes. Some of them, uh, you know, shaped like umbrellas and shaped like sheep and shaped like all sorts of, uh, you know, just interesting things. And it was designed like the labyrinth of Versailles. Hmm. But, yeah, but the labyrinth at Versailles actually had water fountains in different portions of it. And so Frank, instead of doing that, he had one of the largest collections of sundials in the world. And so as you walk through this labyrinth filled with the topiary trees, there were also all these magnificent sundials with, with these fantastic proverbs uh, engraved onto the pedestals as well. But I'll tell you what really gets interesting. On the north side of the house, Sir Frank set aside four acres. And what he did is he had a rockery built. Now, most people don't know what a rockery is. It's kind of a garden filled with rocks. But that wasn't good enough. For Sir Frank. He didn't want just a rockery. So what he decided to do is build it up 40 feet high. And wow. he created yeah, he created an alpine garden. And he filled it with thousands and thousands of the types of um, trees and the different types of flowers that you would see in, uh, in, in, in alpine mountains. Just really fantastic stuff. But that wasn't enough. So what he wanted on top of his Four foot is four acre wide, forty foot high alpine garden. He wanted a miniature version of the Matterhorn, and then to make sure it was accurate, he didn't want to just say, "Oh, okay, there's a photo of it. Let's just go ahead and follow that." He sent his gardener all the way to Switzerland, not only to make to do some sketches of it to make sure it was as accurate as possible, mm-hmm. but to actually grab a rock from there and bring it back. Ugh. You know. And by a rock, I don't mean like something you put in your pocket. No, like a huge boulder. boulder. (laughs) And it took years and years to build this thing. And it was just a monstrosity. And then underneath it all, Sir Frank had secret caves made. And so you would go through these caves, through the Alpine Garden, and they would change as you went through them. So the first one, for example, would have skeletons in it. Now, these weren't real skeletons. Well, maybe they were. I don't, I don't think <laughs> they were. But, but they were skeletons. And once again, considering the time, 1895, early 1900s, electricity was new. So people weren't used to seeing electric lights and that sort of stuff. But Sir Frank had a generator built on his property. And when he had these skeletons hung up in the darkness of these caverns, because there weren't flashlights back then. There weren't anything. You were walking through darkness. He had electric eyeballs 
placed inside these skeletons. Oh my god! <laughs> then he had them put on on like string, so they would come flying at you as you're walking <laughs> through the cave. Crazy! It right? is crazy. But George yeah. George identified with Sir Frank in some way, didn't he? He kind of he had an affinity for him. Well, he had an appreciation. Appreciation, you know, yeah. The, the humor, the mm-hmm. humor. Of, you know, because he, he didn't have to. He didn't take life so seriously. Yeah, and yeah. So yeah, so Friar Park. But you actually, you want to hear something? When when uh, if you read Patty Boyd's wonderful autobiography, right? She actually talks about this, and so does um, Chris O'Dell in her book. When when George bought the property, he didn't know that a lot of this stuff was there. He wanted a larger house that was going to give him some room to build a studio someday. And he also wanted some land so he would be away off the road. So that way fans wouldn't be on top of him all the time. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted some gardens. He had an appreciation for that. He also wanted a water feature. Now, unlike Tittenhurst Park, Friar Park already had a man-made lake, but it actually wasn't one man-made lake. It was actually a series of lakes. And here's why that happened. Let's say you and I are hanging out with Sir Frank, okay? Mm -hmm. We're in the dining room. We're eating pheasant. Uh, Not me, because I'm vegan. So (laughs) you would be eating eating pheasant, and I'd be eating asparagus or something. And we look out the window. And we would see a handful of people walking on water. Now, most people can't walk on water, right? Is that that's that's clear? true? Yes. <laughs> so, so you and I would look at each other and we'd say, "Gee, how in the world are people down there walking on water? It just doesn't seem possible." So we finish eating, and Sir Frank says, "Come on, guys, I'm going to walk you down to the lake." And so we walk down there, and what we will see is that instead of it being one large expanse of water, it was actually a series in tiers, and between each tier were stepping stones. And so it created an optical illusion. The people that we thought were walking on water were actually walking on stepping stones. Hmm. Pretty cool. That is very cool. Very clever, creative. Yeah. And because it was in tiers, it created a waterfall effect. So it mm-hmm. went down from the upper pool and then worked its way down. And what was really even cooler is let's say you and I decided, hey, let's get in a boat and row around a bit. So we would do that. He had ducks in there. He had all sorts of fantastic trees. He had a Japanese bridge built there. And then we're rowing and rowing and rowing. And we head down to the south portion of the lake. And on the side, you look at me and you say, hey, look, there seems to be a grotto or a cave or some sort of opening. Should we go in there? And so we say, oh, let's, I don't well, it's up to you. Should we go in there? Yeah, let's go in. Okay, let's go in. Yeah, okay. let's go. So we're going <laughs> to row inside. And if you watch George Harrison's music video called True Love, mm-hmm. you can actually see uh, him rowing in the boat into the cave. And you get an idea of how small it is. And he goes underneath the stone bridge also. And then they row underneath that. And then he goes into the... Yeah, into the cave. So once you go in there, it's pitch black. It's really, really dark, right? And this is freaky because you think to yourself, what have you gotten yourself into? This isn't a normal situation. But you go in there, and then all of a sudden, you're filled with a big blue light. And, a, and, the, and just it's expanded. And you say to yourself, how in the world is it blue? Because once again, these are the days before electricity. Yeah. How it worked was this. 
above the entryway is a Japanese garden. And in the areas of the Japanese garden where there aren't trees planted, there are some open spaces. The gardeners placed big blue panes of glass. So in the same way that I mentioned earlier that Henry Janeway Hardenberg created these glass roundels in the fountains of the Dakota courtyard in order to allow penetrate of uh, light to penetrate through the fountain into the basement. Well, Sir Frank, uh, his gardeners did the same thing. Light was able to penetrate through the sky, through the panes of glass, and then into this giant cave. And the reason that was done is it was a re replica of the Blue Cave of Capri. And mm. so you go through that, and it was just beautiful and mystical and magical. And then from there, you went through another series of caves. And just like the ones underneath the Alpine Garden, these also had skeletons in them, they had crocodiles, <laughs> owls, they had all sorts of creature, you know, creature, creepy, freakish things meant to uh, just kind of give people a good time. Well, in the song that we were playing earlier, uh, Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, uh, some of the lyrics were actually written on a map from Friar Park. Is that correct? Uh, what, what lines do you remember were uh, written out that George took for the song? Because Friar Park was so huge, and because Sir Frank was such a generous and interesting guy, he actually allowed the uh, Friar Park to be opened one day a week for visitors to be able to come, and they would pay like a dollar, you know, the equivalent of a dollar, and then that money would be donated to the town of Henley, actually to the mayor, to disperse in any way he wanted. And he hired a very well-known and respected artist at the time to create a color map, uh, and this was 1910. And just to give you an idea of what the map looks like, you know when you go to Disney World or Epcot Center or any kind of amusement park, and you get the big map and it shows you, you know, Adventureland, Future World, right. you know, it shows you what the bathrooms are and the rest of it. Okay, that's what... That's what uh, Sir Frank had done in 1910, hmm. and that's what people... So George, when he first bought the property, he was acquiring everything he possibly could on the history of Friar Park, and clearly, at some point, came across this map, and on that map, yes, exactly like you just said, there were all of these uh, uh, ways to describe the different parts of, the, uh, of Friar Park. So the first one, if you go, let's see, if you go to the lyrics, how's it begin? It starts off with "Let it roll across the floor, uh -huh. through Ooh. the through the hall, and out the door." Okay, we got that. Now the next line is to the fountain of perpetual mirth. Now that fountain actually exists, and that's in a knot garden, uh, which can be called a lot of different things, just on the east side of the mansion. And so if you look at the map, it says to the fountain of perpetual mirth. And it's good that it says that because I guess he was looking for something to rhyme with. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got, what do you have next? You've got find me where ye echo lays. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you've got that. And then you have lose ye bodies in the maze. Now, both of those lines were written exactly like that on the 1910 map, but what's cool about Lose Ye Bodies in the Maze is on the northwest side of Friar Park from uh, the early 1900s all the way to about 
oh, about World War II, there actually was a large hedge maze on the property. Hmm. Like yeah. a sort of a labyrinth kind of thing, or like, like the, yeah. in the in the Shining kind of the ending of the Shining there. Like the Shining, yeah. and uh, if David Bowie was there, you'd throw him in the middle in some tights. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, exactly, exactly right. Um, huh. See the Lord and all the mouths he feeds. I don't know what he's talking about there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let it roll among the weeds. Okay, we got that. Probably some weeds laying around. Mm-hmm. Now. Let it roll down through the caves. So we know what that means since we just talked yep. about the caves. And then what do we have? We have ye long walks of cool and shades. That actually people can sort of see. If you go to Friar Park, you're never getting in. No. <laughs> Another, just like the Dakota, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not getting in there. No. But you can see from the south entryway, you can see a gatehouse. And that is where Sir Frank's gardener lived. And as soon as you go through the gate and you pass that cottage, on the left-hand side, there was a pathway. And that was ye long walks of cool and shades. Mm. And then through ye wood, here may ye rest a while. That was actually a reference to the fact that Sir Frank had some benches around Friar Park for his guests to be able to rest. And Fool's Illusions Everywhere is a reference to the fact that there were, indeed, all sorts of optical illusions, not just in the gardens themselves, but even engraved on the house. On the exterior of the house were engravings of all sorts of huh. optical illusions. Really, it, it's, it's Disney World. Yeah, it, really it looks like it. Ugh. Yeah, I, I, I wish maybe uh, Olivia could uh, open up, go, go back to history here and open it up one day a week for all of us to go in and see. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, that would be fantastic. I can't even imagine that ever happening. Yeah, I don't think but, it's going to happen, but it would be nice. I mean, Elvis had Graceland, right? That's true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now you can yeah. go see Graceland, so maybe someday. Yeah. It certainly is feasible. There is the room for it. It could certainly handle guests. But, you know, it's her home, it's her yeah. son's home, and it's a private residence, and I completely uh, understand her wanting her privacy. And honestly, I think that writing the books that I wrote, and even some of these audible adventures, I think in some ways uh, that helps people to, you, you want to see Fry Park. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to see it. But the things that I described to you, most of those things aren't around anymore. And Friar Park was actually a lot more interesting 100 years ago than it was today. Not that it's not interesting today. Of course it is. But there's uh, just the, the labyrinth. You know, the hedge maze isn't there anymore. Oh. Some of those caves are nowhere like the way they were when, when Sir Frank ran the joint. And there were just a lot of different things that are about it. In fact... When, when George Harrison purchased the property, the lake, in a way, wasn't even there. Because it was run by uh, some Catholic nuns as a school, which, by the way, if you don't mind, uh, a lot of people are under the impression that Friar Park used to be a nunnery or a monastery. Mm-hmm. Never happened. <laughs> Never. Even, even the fact that it's called Friar Park has nothing to do with friars. It was probably the surname of some residents hundreds of years ago 
Well, there's so much more we could say. It's, it's, there's, there's, this is really fascinating because it gives a, a window into the Beatles that we don't really talk about very much. We, we spend so much time on the music and knowing trivia about their lives, but not actually where they lived. And uh, this has really been fascinating to talk about. So uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, I want to ask, are you working on any other Beatle homes or plans for other Beatle home studies? And then how can we uh, learn more about what, you're, what you've done and take a look at your, your work? In the early 1900s, like Ed mentioned, uh, Sir Frank had a visitor's guide created. But it's kind of hard to get through. It's really a lot of esoteric information, a lot of superfluous stuff. And it's just a lot of people would probably love to read it. But like I said, it's, it's a handful. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing is I'm creating an annotated version of it as if it was written today. Wow. And so it, as if it was written today, but as if you were back then. And so that way you actually can enjoy reading and taking walking tours through Friar Park as it was in the early 1900s. Neat. And it's, yeah, it's going to be filled yeah. with maps and site uh, plans and floor plans and original and vintage artwork and photographs. So I think people will enjoy that. So we're going to do that. I'm also, uh, we just finished a three-volume uh, book series on Tittenhurst Park. And it focuses on the architecture, the history, and the gardens in the first volume. The second volume is dedicated to 1969 to 1971, when John and Yoko lived there. Mm -hmm. And then the third volume showcases 1973 up until uh, about three days ago. So <laughs> that it talks about Tinhurst Park and how it changed over time. And I think a lot of people will enjoy seeing that property as well and how it added a lot of, you know, a lot of beauty to the lives of John Lennon and Ringo Starr and had an effect on their music. And then on top of all that, because my company uh, writes virtual audio tours for museums and art galleries and different companies, what we've decided to do is create a whole bunch to bring people back in time and actually, rather than just read the books or listen to me talk, we will actually bring you on grand adventures. Mm. So you can, you can go to your computer or go to your phone or put on headphones or whatever you want to do, close your eyes, and we will bring you back in time, and you will actually walk in the footsteps of the Beatles. And we're going to bring you to throughout Friar Park. We're going to bring you throughout Tittenhurst Park. We're going to bring you to the Cavern Club. Ooh. We're going to bring you through uh, NEMS. We're going to give you a tour of the Apple Building. We're going to bring you through Abbey Road. And we're going to bring you through Brian Epstein's homes. And we're just going to give people the experience of what it was like to walk in the footsteps of the Beatles, not only with very vivid descriptions, but with some music as well, some sound effects. You will hear birds flying in the sky. You will <laughs> hear the trucks or the, tr or the uh, cars going by as they sounded at whatever time period this took place. You'll hear wind. You'll, you'll hear butterflies, you know, bees, and just about anything you can possibly think of. So it'll be a lot of fun, and we're actually developing that right now, and probably around the summertime of 2017, there'll be a whole bunch for people to listen to. Wow. This sounds great. I love all this. It's very creative as well, and as I say, it, I think it'll, it brings people uh, into the Beatles story in a very different kind of way that really kind of gives a better picture of the, them as people, too. 
What's the best way we can find all this information? Okay. Well, if you can track, if you want to track me down, the best way to do so is to go to campfirenetwork.com. And from there, there's links to the Audible Adventures. There's also links to a new crowdfunding platform that I'm a part of. It's called Fab Fans Funds. It's kind of like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, except it's for, by, and about Beatle fans. Uh-huh. So it's just people like us. Mm-hmm. So we can support each other. Anybody who wants to write a book or make a documentary or uh, do whatever, if it's something that will appeal to Beatle fans, this is probably a good platform to be able to do that. And then you've got links there to books and videos and Facebook and other fun stuff. Excellent. Well, Scott, thank you so much for talking with us on the talking with me on the podcast. And I wanted to close with a song and I'll let you take us out here. Uh, you chose the answers at the end from George's extra texture album as your third song of our podcast. So uh, what what strikes you about this song? Well, the famous quote, scan not a friend with a microscopic glass. You know his faults. Now let foibles pass. Life is one long enigma, my friend. So read on, read on. The answer's at the end. George got that quote from an engraving at Friar Park. So once again, had he never lived at Friar Park, I have absolutely no idea what those lyrics would have been. But <laughs> at Friar Park, we now all know those lyrics, and we all now get to enjoy that fantastic song. Absolutely. So Friar Park, enjoyed, Friar Park has brought joy and beauty not only to George Harrison's lives, but to us as well. Yes, I couldn't agree more. So thanks for sharing all your work with us today, and uh, look forward to seeing your next project. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work. I love your podcast. I'm so glad you guys do it. It's fantastic. Will do. And thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back with Chris on the next episode. So thanks for listening and enjoy the answers at the end.
long mystery, my friend.